Greetings and welcome to Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association. I'm Brian Reardon. And joining me for this episode is my colleague Betsy Taylor. Betsy is the relatively new editor of our journal Health Progress. Welcome, Betsy. Thanks, Brian. It's wonderful to be here. We've been a little bit of of a hiatus for the podcast as you've taken over. Marian Steiner, of course, used to be in the seat that you're sitting at here at Clayton Studios in St. Louis. Uh, Glad to have you alongside for these conversations. Um, And this episode, we're really going to look at a couple of Articles that recently appeared in Health Progress. Um, I think many of our listeners may know, those of you especially that work in Catholic healthcare and are familiar with the Catholic Health Association, that over the last year we've embarked on an initiative called Confronting Racism by Achieving Health Equity. And really, this is uh, in response to both the pandemic, uh, some of the unrest following the George Floyd murder, and just kind of recognizing as a ministry that we have so much work to do in this area. And so I think these two articles uh, that were entitled, the first one was Two Zip Codes, A World Apart. That was published back in the fall 2020 issue of Health Progress. And then most recently, The COVID Conundrum was published this past spring. Uh, Betsy, tell me a little bit about how those articles came about, and it's part of a a larger project. That's right, Brian. Um, The articles came about, um, there's a project in the St. Louis area called Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson. Um, Joining us today is Dick Weiss, who um, is uh, coordinating that effort in town. And Dick, could you just talk to us a little bit about that project and how it began? Sure. Uh, As as the name would apply, it uh, goes back to Ferguson and the um, killing of uh, Michael Brown and that police shooting. which laid bare, uh, uh, many uh, people were involved with that, and laid bare uh, the inequities in our region. And as uh, many people know, there was a commission, a governor appointed a commission called the Ferguson Commission to address these inequities and to propose uh, solutions. I became a kind of a storyteller around that, and we felt that uh, we, in order to, I guess, create a, a culture of uh, empathy and understanding that we needed to tell the stories of people of color in our community and the challenges that they have faced over generations uh, to gain their purchase on the American dream. And so that's uh, what our project is, is all about. Yeah, and Dick, I uh, appreciate you being in the studio to talk about that. Um, also want to mention that on the uh, a Zoom link, we have joining us uh, Kim Daniel. Kim is a resident of the Preservation Square in St. Louis. Uh, she's actually been sharing her life experiences as part of this uh, racial equity storytelling project, again, called Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson. Kim, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How did you get involved in this project? I was part of Urban Strategies and my supervisor there, uh, Miss uh, Marlene uh, Hodges, she introduced me to, uh, no, 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 not Marlene, uh, Tammy Timmer. Uh, uh, she introduced me to uh, Mr. Wise. And so the two of you have been sort of having ongoing conversations. Obviously, the, the articles, that it, the two that appeared in Health Progress are just sort of the tip of the iceberg. I think there's a lot of storytelling going on around this. Yeah, and uh, I should mention that, that Tammy is the uh, director of a, um, a child care center in the Preservation Square neighborhood, and, and Kim had done uh, some work with Tammy. And I had been working in this neighborhood uh, when, back when I was at the Post-Dispatch, uh, starting about 1999, and so I knew a lot of the people in the neighborhood, and we were 
started to do this project, I just ca- I came back to the people I knew, and Marlene uh, got me in touch with Tammy, and so that's how that kind of all unfolded. And um, uh, Kim has been so great in uh, sharing um, the uh, difficulties and the challenges that she had, and also a, a lot of the joy uh, that she has in helping uh, her friends and neighbors, and particularly the the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, she's kind of like a surrogate aunt. Her mama to them. In the um, in the first article we did in Health Progress, two two zip codes a world apart. Um, Dick, the reporters who are working on this looked at two zip codes: one in Clayton, um, which is known to be a, an affluent um, suburban community here in St. Louis, and six three one zero six, which is in the city. And um, certainly in Catholic healthcare, we know that. People's day-to-day lives, the circumstances they live in, can um, really have an impact on their health long-term. And I'm wondering about um, some of the differences uh, you saw in the reporting between these two zip codes and um, what living in these different areas can mean for people's life expectancy um, and and what you found about why that is. Yeah, the uh, uh, 63105... uh, uh, Compared to 63106, one digit off, but uh, as uh, you said, Betsy, worlds apart. Um, Clayton is mostly white community. It's uh, the wealthiest uh, per capita in, uh, in in our region, and 63106 is uh, at the bottom. And the average life expectancy, according to a, a fairly recent study, in 63106 is 67 years old and in clayton it's 85 18 year uh, gap so in in many ways uh, where you live uh, determines how long you live and of course uh, you can imagine uh, what some of the differences are some of it is violence and, and but uh, actually uh, there are there are many other things that are even even more prevalent. It's the air that uh, folks breathe. It's what we might call toxic stress uh, on the people who live in 63106, where uh, if crime doesn't uh, hit you directly, uh, it is just uh, a sense of uh, being fearful uh, every day of your life uh, about what might happen. And uh, you know, Kim has spoken quite eloquent eloquently uh, to that situation. Kim, can you talk with us a little bit about um, about your experience? I mean, I know for us, we're talking zip codes, but uh, this is where you wake up every morning. I'm sure you, there's a lot of things that are wonderful about uh, your neighborhood, but uh, I would imagine there's also some struggles that come up. Um, would you just talk to us a little bit about your experience where you live? Yes. In my experience, I've been here 18 years. Uh, I, I never expected to be here this long. I thought it was I was going to come in and come out. But in my time here, I have witnessed the struggles of many people, uh, especially the children. I became a tutor in the neighborhood. Some of the people call me uh, Mama Kim. Some call, some call me Ma- Mother Daniels. And some just call me Miss Kim. But uh, in the process, I have tutored several uh, young children, a couple, a few young men, uh, and it's mostly young men that I've had the opportunity of tutoring. But um, as far as the struggle is concerned, it's so poverty-ridden, and but it's poverty-ridden in the sense of poverty and hope. There is, there is a lack of hope. 
because everyone sees crime as a solution, whether it's drug dealing, uh, thievery, uh, car car uh, carjacking. People see crime as a solution more so than anything else. How, how from your perspective and, and those that you work with, it sounds like you're doing some good work in the community at a grassroots level. Um, for those of your neighbors that are trying to provide a counter to those who think crime is the answer, what what are some of the strategies that as you get together and have conversations with your colleagues, is it a matter of just continuing to be in front of local officials and saying, this has got to happen? Because I, I can't even begin to imagine the challenge uh, that you all face in really trying to, to turn things around or at least make a difference. In, the, in my community, most people don't even go before uh Anyone, any elected officials that can make a difference. Most of them, those that are are attempting to get out of the community, usually go the route of education. Education is their thing, or they work two or three jobs in order to get themselves free from this community. Uh, the last thing is uh, elected officials because. They haven't done much as is. At least that's how people see it. When it doesn't change, when things don't change for you personally, they don't see changes across the board. Yeah, one of the interesting things about this project, we we involved our reporters are involved with um, eight, eight different families in uh, in the zip code six three one zero six. I don't think any of those family members have turned out for a protest, for Black Lives Matter protest. They're not political. They're trying to get by with their lives, and um, they are um, really, it's important. I think they uh, support the protests in, in many respects, but they're truly uh, uh, the unheard. Um, and uh, that, that's what's been, uh, to a, at least to a degree for us, is that we are giving them a voice and uh, they can talk about the complications and the challenges and uh, to people who um, maybe can um, step up and, and do something about the systems that are um, uh, so difficult for these uh, residents. This past spring, we published a second article from the Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson project. That one is called The COVID Conundrum. And um, as, again, many of our listeners will know, um, it really looks at uh, the ways that um, poor communities, uh, people of color, have been um, really hit hard by this pandemic. Um, and Disproportionately so, yeah. Right, right. right. And uh, so I wonder if we can talk a little bit about some of the, um, the things the reporters on that article found. Um, it's... Uh, quite a few people, at least initially, were very hesitant to get vaccinated, um, even though, uh, Kim, I know, um, I believe your family was hit pretty hard by COVID. So um, I'm wondering uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about um, sort of your experience of the pandemic. Um, I know it hasn't been easy on anybody. And um, your thoughts on vaccination. Yes, thank you. Uh, yes, my family was hit very hard. We had seven deaths back to back. Uh, on my my brother was uh, one of the well not the first but he was one, included in it and on his death certificate they they uh, listed COVID 
although we initially thought that it was just a stroke, but they listed uh, COVID-19 as the cause of death. And um, I also lost several cousins. Uh, they were older, more mature in their 70s and 80s. My brother, he was only 46. Um, this the COVID vac the COVID uh, pandemic has been a very hard thing to deal with. Uh, however, the vaccine issue even is even harder to deal with. Um, myself and my younger son and daughter-in-law and grandchildren are not vaccinated and desire not to be vaccinated. Uh, however, there are other family members, friends and neighbors that have that are now vaccinated. My father became vaccinated. Uh, he's he, my my sister uh, says that she was vaccinated under duress. Not quite sure how to understand that one. But it, yeah, I there's a lot of questions. Me personally, though, because I'm a congenital heart patient, uh, I did not want to chance receiving the vaccine because there's just too little data. And I've been following the studies out of Israel, India, and uh, Germany. And I have still come to the conclusion that I will remain unvaccinated. Kim, how are the conversations with your family members and friends about those who have decided not to get vaccinated and those who said, yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the vaccine? Um, I would imagine there's some pretty differing opinions, but is there any area where you're, there's consensus where maybe you say, hey, if, if we had this evidence or if our, the physicians we, we see all were kind of, it, what, what are some of the challenges for those who feel that they shouldn't get vaccinated and, and what are those who got vaccinated saying to those of you who have not i guess i'm just curious about what kind of internal debates you've had because this is obviously a national debate going on right now and I, I would be curious of you know within your own family and and neighbors what some of those discussions look like well in my family the biggest supporter of the vaccine was my father and he was as as soon as it was available he he made his appointment to go and get vaccinated. He now has both vaccin vaccinations, both Pfizer, and he is waiting for the booster shot. Um, however, other those of us that are not interested in the vaccine, we are we are just following the studies. But there are there are constant. Uh, constant debates because in in my father's eyes we should all have these this vaccine because he has forgive me when i say this uh but it's how i feel uh he has bought into the fear that has been that has been promoted all throughout the the television and internet and they I feel that all information is not yet been presented so that people can make a wise and informed choice. And some some people are just not taking the vaccine because it's just how they feel uh, intuitively. Others are not taking it because 
they believe is is a conspiracy and yet others are not taking it because they just want to wait and see they just want to wait and see uh and i guess they're part of that conspiracy part me personally i i'm just not interested uh after i've read through much of the the because i go on pubmed a lot and once I read through the data out of India and now the data out of Israel, um, if it hits my doorstep, I will I will handle it without a vaccine. Uh, Kim, I know in the article you mentioned that um, this was a few months ago, but that I, I believe you thought you weren't talking to your um, I think it was your cardiologist. Mm-hmm. about the vaccine um, because you you just didn't feel like maybe there was a trust relationship there or, you know, you as you said, you're doing reading on your own. You wanted to make up your own mind. Is there anything, um, CHA is an organization, obviously, we um, we support vaccination. Um, but is there anything a healthcare provider could say to you that would change your mind? Or um, is there anything that would come out from the FDA or another organization that might make you say, okay, you know, I've read a lot and this has shifted my thinking on this? For me, no. Maybe other family members, but for me, no. I did finally have a conversation with my primary cardiologist. And because he was not pushing the issue, uh, I was I was satisfied. He, he did not push the issue. Although he is no longer my cardiologist anymore, because he has been moved from the facility, uh, relocated. And uh, so now I will have a new cardiologist and I have to start this process all over again. But uh, he was not pushing the issue when I expressed that I was not interested. It was it was like me saying I'm not interested in a, um, in taking a pill. You know, it, it were, that wasn't there was no debate, there was no push, there was no information given, no tactics taken. He was like, okay, well, we'll see you in your next visit. Yeah, one of the things that we're finding with uh, many of the families is that they've had um, unpleasant, uh, sometimes unfortunate experiences with the healthcare system. It can be uh, just uh, being uh, treated rudely. Sometimes it can be um, a situation where uh, somebody comes in and, and says they're in pain and they don't get the medication that they need to address that. There's somebody uh, currently living in, uh, Tammy Timmer told me about, living in the Preservation Square area that was uh, in, in the military and was sterilized. And, um, you know, that goes back uh, 50 years. But uh, he shares that story with people. And so they uh, that creates uh, mistrust, uh, uh, understandably so, in the healthcare system. So when you come out with a uh, a brand new vaccine uh, and it's developed so quickly, uh, people are are skeptical. Um, maybe they shouldn't be, but that's that's what is going is how people are processing information in uh, in six three one zero six. That is true, Dick. And may I also say, I am also one of those individuals. Uh, my C- ICD that I have, well, not the present ICD, but the very first ICD I had was put in my chest after 
there was a recall on the device. Oh my! Yeah, what, it a, was put Kim, in. Kim, what's right? an ICD? A, it's a defibrillator. A defibrillator, yes. Mm -hmm. It's a combination defibrillator pacemaker, and it was placed in my chest one month after the recall. Mm -hmm. One month, and so that's one reason. But I have several reasons why I have experienced several tragic events with the healthcare system, uh, especially in the state of Missouri and in Arkansas, where I once lived, but a lot more so in the state of Missouri uh, uh, because I've had more, because I'm from here. Yeah, and of course, we had this uh, recent. Uh controversy in Missouri in which the voters voted uh, for Medicaid expansion and it still is yet to be uh, fully implemented uh, long after uh, the vote was taken and so that also uh, breeds mistrust. No and, and just just hearing both of you it's it's trust and, and you you touched on fear too and I, I wonder uh, I think Betsy myself and, and Dick we all have uh, roots in journalism um, Again, this isn't a conversation about the media, but I do think there is just this sort of overload of information that's coming at us every day, every second. And um, I don't know, Dick, if you want to speak to how this storytelling project hopefully can kind of provide people with a sense of, of trusted information. Yeah, I think uh, what we do, uh, you might call it intimate journalism um, in that we really want to know about um, – uh, our families' everyday life, what it is that they do to get through the day, and, and how it is that they under, begin to understand things. And uh, uh, what makes this project a little bit different is that it's a, what we would call a serial narrative. Uh, these stories aren't just one and done. Uh, I'm just finishing up with Kim, the fifth chapter in her uh, uh, series. Uh, it, uh, part of this was shared with uh, with Health Progress, but uh, it's also been on uh, the St. Louis Public Radio. All all five chapters are there, and uh, so you, if you follow along, uh, you can see how her thinking evolves and what it is that she runs into. There's, uh, I must say, uh, Kim. I mean, you keep me on uh, on pins and needles because there's always something happening in your life. And here you are. What you just turned fifty five yesterday, and uh, you live alone. Happy birthday! <laughs> Thank you. And you and you would and you don't go out much. And you would think, well, there's not much going to be happening to somebody like that. And yet, something's always happening and, and uh, this next chapter that we're working on is you uh, a, a young man a 15 year old uh, uh, youth was uh, murdered uh, not 200 yards uh, from your uh, apartment and uh, he was you had grown close to, to him and, and you lost him and uh, yes. a very sad situation and that um, reverberates in so many ways not only in your life but uh, throughout the neighborhood yes. That is correct. He was a he was a he was a very talkative, sometimes loudmouth individual. When I first met him, he had instigated a, a group of teenagers to bust out my, the tail light of my car because I kept moving the basketball goal away from my vehicle so that it would not be damaged. I had just purchased the car uh, thirty days earlier, and they 
tore out the, they took a big rock those rocks that you that they used to uh sit the the dishes down the, those satellite dishes down with uh because they can't attach them to the units so they sit them in the yards with these large stone rocks and he instigated these young people to get grab this rock and bust out my taillight of my brand new vehicle. But I realized that he had leadership skills, even in that moment, as mad as I was, I could see he had exceptional leadership skills and he had other talents. Uh, <laughs> it weren't always positive, but he was a talented young man. And one day, he found himself standing out needing a ride somewhere. And I saw him and I gave him a ride. And I waited for him so that I could bring him back to the neighborhood. And that changed our relationship. And from then on, he began, if he saw me and saw I was in need of someone carrying my bags in the house when I would uh, return from the grocery store, he would be there to do so. Wow, sorry for your loss, but that does speak to just the power of those, you know, one-on-one uh, relationships. So, um, Kim, we really appreciate you, you know, sharing some of your experience. I think we could talk for uh, a much, much longer time, but I, I do think this project um, really kind of helps. It doesn't matter if you live in St. Louis; it doesn't matter where you live. Every community in our country, uh, you know, has neighborhoods that are disadvantaged that are more vulnerable. And the point of I think one of the analogies was made in one of the articles is that we're we're all in the Titanic. Mm. You know, we're all in this together, particularly during COVID. I think that's brought us out. So I really applaud both of you for the, uh, Kim, for you sharing and being part of this series and Dick for your leadership on this, because I I think it's so important for all of us, no matter where we live, to understand where, you know, the challenges some of our neighbors have, uh, particularly for those of us who are more fortunate uh, and recognizing that we all have a lot of work to do to make those connections with people. Uh, and I think, again, to build trust, that was one of the things that I heard very clear from you, Kim, is is the need to, um, for us, particularly working in healthcare, is we have so much more work to do to earn the trust of our patients across the board. Betsy, any final comments? Um, I appreciate both of you being with us here today. And um, Kim, I also very much respect um, your choices. I feel like if there's anything um, CHA can do, if we can put you in touch with someone, if you want more information about vaccination, um, we would definitely be willing to help with that. Um, But really helpful to hear your story and to hear about your day-to-day experiences. And um, Health Progress is really uh, pleased to be part of this uh, project and this reporting. So thanks to you both. So again, we want to thank Dick Weiss. He's the co-founder and executive director of Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson. That's a nonprofit racial equity storytelling project. Dick, what's the website? If people want to go just beyond what they read in Health Progress, where would they go to find more information about it? Uh, yeah, you could go to uh, Before Ferguson, uh, Beyond Ferguson.org. Uh, there you can find all the stories from our 63106 project. You can also sign up for a new uh, weekly newsletter on uh, race equity matters. Um, on, on the website before Ferguson, beyond Ferguson.org. I also just want to mention uh, Sally J. Altman, who is the lead author on both these stories, also my wife. Oh, well, there you go. Good, <laughs> good, good job. And, and Kim, we want to actually give you the final, final word. Anything you want to share with our, our listeners again are, are primarily those folks that work in Catholic healthcare. Any message that you want to just share with them before we sign off here? 
Well, first, I'd like to say thank you for having me. I appreciate you listening to me. And that's what we all need. We need our healthcare workers to listen to us, to hear us, and sometimes to just be compassionate toward us. Amen. Thank you both so much. Again, this has been another edition of Catholic Health USA, the podcast of the Catholic Health Association of the United States. I'm Brian Reardon, uh, along with uh, Betsy Taylor and our friends at Clayton Studios. We appreciate you listening. Until next time, we'll talk to you.